Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name's Matt. If you don't know me, if you're a first-time guest here, first of all, welcome. Uh, we're honored to have you, and our, our hope and our prayer for you this morning is that you would encounter a resurrected Jesus. As we celebrate his birth, we remember that he died on the cross for our sins, and he raised from the dead so that we might be saved. So thank you for being here. Uh, we are smack dab in the middle of our Advent series entitled Christ is All, and we've been anchoring our time out of Luke chapter 24, particularly in verse 44, where Jesus said these words, uh, these are my words that I spoke to to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And, and Jesus said this to illustrate that everything that had been written about him throughout the, the whole word of God was true, and it bared, bore witness about him, and all of the prophecy would be fulfilled. And this is why we've been digging into the law of Moses, into the prophets, into the Psalms, which, by the way, are the three main divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. Isn't that interesting that Jesus would say that all three of these divisions bear witness about me? And so week one, Matt Ulrich talked about the law serving as a preview of what was to come in Jesus, in this coming Messiah. And last week, Pastor Kevin was in the book of Isaiah, who was a prophet who was looking forward to and longing for this Messiah to come. And next week, we'll have guest speaker George Jacobus, who's going to close out our Advent series with this idea of Christ is the Savior. But this week, we're going to be diving into Psalm 110. And we're going to see a powerful exposition of Jesus' life and ministry. And I believe that unpacks three uh, big key points about Jesus that we're going to look at today. And my hope is that it's going to shape and inform uh, your celebration for Christmas. I have always loved Christmas. It's always been huge for me, even from when I was a little bitty kid uh, coming up on Christmas Eve. I, I never slept Christmas Eve. You can ask my parents about this. I, I never slept. I would lay in bed and my eyes would close for a minute or two, but my eyes were uh, pop back open just thinking about all the gifts. And so that, I, I couldn't sleep. Christmas is just a few hours away. Why, why sleep and waste time when you could be anticipating all of the fun? When, when I got older and became a teenager, I really looked forward to the time off of school and I enjoyed going to the family gatherings where we'd get to hang out with grandparents and cousins, get gifts, and, and just kind of have some downtime, which was a blast. When, when I came to know Jesus after uh, my senior year of college, uh, it, it changed for me. And Christmas was no longer simply just a celebration to have a bunch of food and presents and, and all of this. It was uh, the deep meaning and significance uh, of what this was for believers, that this was a celebration of the coming of our Messiah. And, and now, as a parent, one of the things that I love about Christmas is getting to connect the dots for my kids about the significance of Jesus' birth. It's awesome getting to see their little minds just unpack the truth about Jesus coming and dwelling among us. But even after 38, almost 39 years of celebrating Christmas, I tend to capture only a small glimpse of the person and work of Jesus. And, and in fact, my view of Jesus at Christmas time is so small, both literally and figuratively. Here's what I mean by that. I would be, I would be willing to bet that for most of us, when we think about Christmas 
And we think about all that Christmas entails. When we think about Jesus during this time, we have this picture of Jesus and he's a baby. And it makes sense if you think about it. Because everything's geared around that, right? Most of us probably have a nativity scene in our house where we see baby Jesus laid in a feeding trough on a bed of hay. All all of our Christmas songs, not all, but many of our Christmas songs are focused on the attribute of him being a baby, right? The holy infant, so tender and mild. The babe on Mary's lap is sleeping. The little baby, pa-rum-pa-pum-pum. It's about the baby Jesus. Thank you. I, I'll be here all week. But not here. But. And I think that we tend to fall into this idea. We, we tend to follow the, uh, the path of the great theologian Ricky Bobby, who pictured Jesus as the eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, who don't even know a word yet, just a little baby and so cuddly. Listen, seeing Jesus as baby Jesus, I, I don't think it's wrong, but by itself it's incomplete at best. There's this divine paradox that we encounter here with Jesus' birth where, yes, he's the infant so tender and mild, but he's also Lord at his birth. Where he's the baby who's sleeping on Mary's lap, but he's also Christ the King. Where we get to play our drum for this baby, but we also don't have a gift that's fit to give to this king, right? So there's this paradox, there's this balance that we're wrestling within uh, here in Christmas. And if we just see Jesus as a helpless baby, there's a few things that can happen. First of all, we will tend to focus on his neediness as an infant rather than our own. We will fail to see the sovereign Lord, creator of all, because it's just a baby, right? And then we won't bring our own brokenness and our own hurt and our pain and our baggage to him, because after all, what can a baby do about the complexities of my problems in my life? What we're left with, then, is a fun celebration with fun music, with fun times with friends and family, with fun presents to open, but it's all a veneer that completely covers the absolute mess that's stewing just beneath the surface in all of us. And what will happen is we will get through Christmas 2020, and on December 26th, we will still be holding the bag of our brokenness. Nothing is different. Nothing has changed. We're just a little bit fatter, and we're just a little bit more spoiled from all of the stuff that we got to give ourselves to for this Christmas celebration. As we celebrate Christmas, don't forget that there is a lion in the manger. There is a lion in the manger who's able to handle the worst that our lives can throw at him. And I think that Psalm 110 is going to really help us grasp this and unpack this. So as we dive into the psalm, uh, there are three things that I want us to remember and consider about the person and work of Jesus uh, this Christmas. Uh, the, the first point is this. Christ is the king. Christ is the king, verses 1 to 3 in Psalm 110. Listen to this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I love the verbiage in these first three verses. I mean, look at it. Sit at my right hand, right? This is the place of position, the position of power and honor and glory. He, he says, enemies will be a footstool, that there's going to be a mighty scepter, that there will be ruling amidst the enemies, and that the people of God will willingly and freely give themselves to his purpose and to his mission. These are descriptors of a king. These are descriptors of a king who, in my mind, just steamrolls his enemies without even breaking a sweat. This is the, the dude who, he, I, he, he's sitting in his lazy chair, his, his uh, lazy boy, his feet reclined up on top of his enemies, not even worried about the battle, because nobody can beat him. So how does this truth impact us? I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think about something. I want you to think about your enemy. I know you're like, oh, I came to church to get rid of the enemy. Bear with me. Think about your enemy for a moment. And I get for, for some of us, it may not be an actual person. Maybe, maybe you have an, an actual person who's your enemy, you know, has your name on the top of their list. It's like, oh. But I want you to think about your enemy for a moment and get this picture in your head. Each of us faces an enemy of some, uh, some sort. Fear, anxiety, depression, loss, addiction, performance, people-pleasing, whatever it is. The truth of the matter is that whatever our enemy is, whoever our enemy is, right, it's scary, right? Can we just go ahead and throw that out there, that it's scary? They are intimidating. They put us on the defensive, and they strike fear into our hearts. Here's what you need to know. Christ, the King, is not afraid of your enemy. Christ the King is not even affected by your enemy. Christ the King sees your enemies not as a threat, but as a comfy place for him to prop his feet up. Now you may be thinking, okay, that's great, Matt, but I'm not Christ the King. And no, you're not, not even close. But, God, there's a but there, right? But if you're his, if you follow him, if you are called by his name, then you need to know this, that your enemies are his enemies. If you are a child of the king, you need to know that the king does not allow his children to be ruled by their enemies. He does not share well. So what if this Christmas, instead of just seeing Jesus as the baby Jesus, you saw Christ the king? What would change? What would change for you? What would, what would your encounter with your enemies look like? <laughs> I get this, this picture in my head, right, of the kid who's facing his bully with his dad right there with him, talking all kinds of smack because he's like, I got dad with me, right? Shouldn't this be how we face our enemies? That we've got a king with us who cannot be defeated? 
Does that change how we celebrate Christmas? See, suddenly our enemy doesn't look so scary (laughs) when we remember that this Messiah that was born on Christmas Day is this great and powerful king. But weigh that with the alternative, right? The alternative of just seeing Jesus is that newborn baby Jesus. Now, picture facing your enemy with the newborn. <laughs> that changes the equation a little bit. Now I've got to fight this enemy and not drop the baby. I can't even make a cup of coffee when I'm holding my newborn Jasper. I cannot imagine myself being in a fight with an enemy holding my baby. It just does not work. It w- I would be hopeless. So this Christmas, remember, Christ is the king, and he rules over all. It's not just the baby. The second point is this. Christ is the priest. Christ is a priest. Verse 4, check this out. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this can be a little bit confusing. There's some things here that we don't normally talk about, like uh, what does it mean that he's a priest? What is a priest? And then who is this Melchizedek guy? So we're going we're gonna to dive in and answer a little bit of that. First, what is a priest? What does a priest do? What's, what's a function of a priest? And uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 5 tells us a little bit about this. Uh, there, there are kind of two large overarching roles that a priest would have. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Okay? So the first role of a priest was to be in relationship with God on behalf of men. And what these guys would do is that they would uh, interact with the Lord, they'd go into the Holy of Holies, and, and the priest ultimately kept humanity from being destroyed by the radiance, glory, majesty, and power uh, that the Lord manifested. In, in the Old Testament times, you couldn't simply go meet with the Lord and go have a little powwow, sit down face to face. Remember in uh, Exodus, he told Moses uh, that uh, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And then in uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, you may remember this story. These guys offered an unauthorized sacrifice uh, of fire on his altar, and what happened? They became the barbecue. You can't simply approach the Lord however you want. And so a priest would approach the Lord in a very specific uh, manner and acted as a buffer between the Lord and the people. So that was the first thing, right? To act in relationship between God and humanity. The second thing was to offer sacrifices uh, for the sins of man. So the priest would offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Uh, You may have heard of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement where the the sins of the people would be placed on an animal, that animal would be killed brutally, and its blood would be spread on the altar. And and these sacrifices were ultimately an attempt to try and pay for the penalty of of the sin of mankind. Uh, And basically, they're trying to stay the wrath of God. So again, the role of a priest, act as an intermediary between humanity and God, and offer sacrifices for humans to uh, pacify the wrath of God. So the second question is, who's this Melchizedek guy? 
In Genesis 14, we get the story of Melchizedek. It's actually a fascinating story. He's this mysterious priest who just kind of appears out of nowhere. Right? Abram has just gotten done fighting a war to rescue his uh, nephew Lot, and, and Melchizedek shows up. And Abraham, Abram does something very interesting. Uh, he tithes to this guy. He gives him 10% of everything that he had. And the interesting thing about Melchizedek in Genesis 14, his name actually means king of righteousness. And he's referred to as the priest of God most high. And he's also referred to as the king of Salem or the king of peace or wholeness. So you get this really interesting picture of this guy who, um, as, as Hebrews would talk about, he's, a, he's without father or mother or without genealogy, so he, that nobody knows where he came from, uh, that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, and that uh, he resembles the Son of God re- remaining a priest forever. That's how they talk about Melchizedek. So this guy is a priest unlike any other that we see in the Old Testament. Every other priest had their priesthood established and affirmed by human means. They had hands laid on them. They were appointed as a priest. But this guy was named a priest by the Lord himself. And additionally, here in Psalm 110 and in Hebrews 7, it says that he is this priest forever. His priesthood does not come to an end. And this cannot be said of any other priest throughout the Bible. They all died and their priesthood ended. And Psalm 110 tells us that this Messiah is going to be like that, that his priesthood will never end. So I want you to get this picture in your head of Jesus as your great high priest, okay? Um, His priesthood is established by divine authority. It cannot be overturned. It cannot be challenged, and it cannot be undermined. And it doesn't have an end, so he's going to be the priest forever, So remember, the roles of the priest, what's he going to do? He's going to stand between us and God the Father in relationship with him on our behalf. Hebrews 6, 19-20 says this, "We, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, his relationship with the Father on our behalf, provides us with a hope that enters boldly into the Holy of Holies. Remember what I said? You could not simply approach God. Well, now we can because of what Jesus has done as our great high priest. That's the type of relationship that he's welcomed us into. No other priest has ever been able to do that. Remember the second role, to offer sacrifices. Jesus offered a sacrifice for the sins of man. The difference here His sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice that didn't have to be repeated over and over, year after year. Hebrews 10.4, if you haven't gathered it yet, Hebrews talks a lot about this idea of priests and Jesus being our great high priest. 10.4 says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus offered his own blood. And it never needed to be done again, which is why as he's breathing his last on the cross, he utters the word to telestai, which means it is finished. That's our great high priest. So what does this mean for us? 
means that we've been granted complete, full, and unfettered access to the throne of God. We don't need a priest to go between us and the Lord anymore. It also means that we have been granted a full and complete pardon for all of our sins. Jesus' sacrifice is completely and totally sufficient for sins committed past, present, and future. Theologically, this is called propitiation, that he has taken away the wrath for our sins. We are no longer under wrath because of what Jesus has done. So that wrath has been satisfied. It also means that we've been cleansed and there is no longer any sort of stain of sin. Jesus' sacrifice not only pardoned us and, and satisfied the wrath of God, but it made us clean as though we had never been stained by sin. Theologically, we call this expiation. That when, Jesus, when God looks on us, he sees Jesus' holiness and purity. He doesn't see the brokenness of what we're carrying around. He sees his spotless son. That's phenomenally good news. So behold Christ the priest this Christmas. Don't just see the baby. See Christ the priest and stand in awe of all of that, of what that means for you as a Christian. Third point is this. Christ is the warrior. Christ is the warrior, verses 5 to 7. It says this. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What a cheery Christmas verse, right? Battlefields littered with corpses. <laughs> I, I think this one goes hand in hand with Jesus is the king, right? But he isn't just a king who sits on his throne and gives out mandates and orders and has somebody else fight his battles. He is a warrior king. Friday night, we showed our kids the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, which they're, they're young, so I mean, I'm watching, I'm like, oh, this is intense. <laughs> and, and watching my four-year-old watch this is actually more fun than watching the movie itself, I think, uh, because he jumps and, you know, when all that, it's great. But uh, as I'm watching it, I was reminded of this conversation in the book uh, between Mr. Beaver and Susan, and, and they're talking about Aslan. This is what Lewis wrote. This is Mr. Beaver. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, I think as we think about this baby Jesus and then contrast that with warrior Jesus, we need to have this understanding um, that there's, there's a contrast between the kind of peaceful manger scene and this battlefield filled with bodies. There's a stark contrast here. This is an aspect of Christ that's often overlooked uh, because many want to portray Jesus as like this just super peaceful dude who doesn't really have anything mean or ugly to say to anybody. Um, he's just chill, maybe a little hippie-ish, probably hopped up on CBDs to maintain that calm demeanor. But 
The idea of him being a warrior who shatters kings and leaves a wake of corpses in his path, it doesn't reconcile well with us. But it's the exact picture of Revelation chapter 19 where he is treading the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, wearing a robe that's been dipped in blood. See, this baby that we celebrate on Christmas is the same one, the same Christ who will return and wreck shop on Satan's sin and death. And take a look at verse 6. It says that he's going to execute judgment among the nations. When I read this, every time I, I see the word nations in Scripture, I'm drawn back to Matthew chapter 28, this great commission, right? To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, you contrast that with verses like this, because judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. Jesus knew that. And that's why he said, this is urgent. We have to go tell the nations. We have to tell people about the good news of Jesus. Because if people do not hear the name of Christ, if they do not respond to the gospel, if they do not commit themselves to him, then the only thing that awaits them is wrath. The warrior Christ. So how should this impact us? How should this truth impact us? First, it should make us far less casual with the Lord. I'm not saying that we should not have a loving and warm relationship with God. I absolutely do think we should have a warm and loving relationship with God. But I'm saying that we should see him as a lion who is good, but he is not safe. He's good, but he is not safe. He loves us with a deep and perfect and profound love, but he also demands our obedience. It's two sides of the same coin. I think the second thing that it should do for us is ignite an urgency in our hearts to help others encounter this Jesus. If we really believed that warrior Christ was coming back, and if we really believed that he was going to execute judgment, then we would be much more motivated to take that gospel message and share it with those around us. We would be committed to discipleship, helping people see this Jesus and then come to know him and then walk in him. We'd function more like a Navy SEAL team on a rescue mission rather than a country club selling people on comfort and security. Listen, this is a soapbox of mine, so bear with me for a moment. <laughs> when you get called into the family of Christ, you were not called into some safe and sanitized life where risk and danger are not a part of the equation. That's just not what he called you into. The Father sent his Son into the world to die. Christian, you were called to be a part of a rescue force, and your safety is not guaranteed, at least here. Now, to eternity, absolutely, without a doubt. Safety, security, all of it in Jesus. may cost you your life here, but you've got eternal security there. And the question is, do we really think that warrior Jesus is going to look at us and approve of our personal pursuit 
of health and safety above obedience to him, above the salvation of others. He demands more from us than this, and the stakes are very high. So the question this Christmas, who are you going to encounter that doesn't know him? Who's going to be at your Christmas table that the Lord intends to use you to help them hear, see, and respond to this message of hope? And what do you need to do in order to position yourself to be there and be obedient to that call? Listen, I want, I want to close with this. Celebrate Christmas this year and do it up good. Gather with family. Eat a great meal. Listen to Christmas carols. Exchange gifts. Watch Christmas movies. Watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and, and A Christmas Story. Watch all of that. Read the, the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 with your family. But make sure that you've got an accurate picture of Jesus. Celebrate the birth of Jesus, but be ready to bow before Christ the King. Celebrate the birth of Jesus, but be thankful for Christ the priest. Celebrate the birth of Jesus, but don't trifle with Christ the warrior. Remember that the manger rests in the shadow of the cross. And the cross rests in the shadow of the throne. And that throne will not be overturned, will not be overthrown. It will continue forever. Let's pray.